So let me invite you to take your uh, copy of God's Word and turn to James. We're still in our series uh, talking about how faith impacts the world. Uh, we've been in James since August. Uh, it's a small book. We've been going through it verse by verse by verse and section by section. Uh, the hope, and I think the way it's planned out now, is we'll be finished uh, right around the time uh, that I'll be starting a Christmas series. And I'm really excited because uh, right now, in this moment, uh, we're going to walk through the book of Ruth for the four weeks of Christmas. Uh, Ruth is, uh, you don't think much about Christmas when you think of Ruth, but it really is a story uh, that relates to Christmas. If no other connection, it takes place in Bethlehem. Uh, but there's a lot in Ruth that connects to Jesus as well. So a few more weeks as we walk through James. Now, as we think about this sermon today, conflict, reason, and remedy. This is the great part about walking through the Bible expository, in an expository way. Uh, because you come to topics that can be challenging and difficult, that will step on people's toes, mine included as I studied this week. Uh, but if I go through it verse by verse, nobody can say I'm picking on you, right? Because uh, that's just next. I'm preaching what's next. And I say that because really the focus is on church conflict. Uh, which is a hard topic to talk about, uh, maybe to lighten that topic a little bit uh, before we get really serious about it. I found a list by Tom Rainer. Uh, you can Google it. There's 25 of these. I'm not going to read all 25 of absurd arguments that have taken place in churches. Now, I hope and I, I went through these 25 things and prayerfully considered the ones I was going to pick because I do not want to offend anybody here. <laughs> And I really hope none of this has happened. The first one, I, I think we're okay. I mean, Graham's got a beard, but that's not that long. An argument broke out over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. <laughs> Business meeting topic. This was a good one. I got to keep an eye on our deacons to make sure this doesn't happen. A deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter about him. They decided to settle the matter in the parking lot. Uh, this, this is one of my favorites. A church argument broke out and a vote took place to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. Yes. Now, see, there's not one back there. And if I ever get long-winded, I expect one to show up. I worked with a, an interim pastor one time, the church he was coming from. They had a clock, and they put it up there because he would preach about an hour, and they wanted him to uh, not preach so long. Uh, another fight broke out over the picture of what picture of Jesus will we put in the foyer? And you're like, I mean, you know we don't know what Jesus looked like, really, right? You know. So I, in my mind, I think it's like this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus versus the you know Middle Eastern Jesus. You've seen those pictures. The Middle Eastern one's more accurate, just to be honest with you. Uh, Jesus did not have blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, a church argument over whether you should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. <laughs> Anybody leaving that church if they voted against it? <laughs> uh, although I've discovered I, uh, COVID messed my taste buds up and I can't eat eggs anymore. So that's very disappointing. Uh, this is another one. A disagreement over changing from potluck. To pot blessing. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, and again, there's there's 25 of these. Uh, they're really funny. You can go through them. Those are just some of my favorite. 
Uh, you can Google it, Tom Rainer, 25 church arguments. Um, I remember when he did this, what he did is he put a Twitter poll out there, and he just asked pastors to share their experiences. There were actually over 100 different ones that were shared. These were just the most common. Uh, but it's just interesting. We'll fight about anything, won't we? Yeah. How about this? I know I'm picking on churches a little bit, but your families will fight about anything too, right? Yeah, there, there's conflict in every aspect of life. We see that week in and week out. And I know there's a lot of people who are sitting here and, and maybe you've been through this and you're like, you know, I just wish we could go back to the old days when there was no church conflict. Anybody remember that? Anybody done that? A lot, I mean, some people might be thinking, I just, you know, that early church, they were so unified. You realize we would not have the books of the Bible if it were not for church conflict. I mean, that's basically all of Paul's letters are addressing uh, some sort of church conflict. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Lot started to fight with his uncle Abraham uh, in Genesis 13. Didn't really end well. Absalom created a war between him and his father, David, in 2 Samuel. The disciples created problems amongst themselves because they were arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. Right? You know, which, you know, and then you got this, you, then you got the mama coming up and says, can both my kids sit on your right and left hand side? That can cause problems, but she's just being a good mama. Uh, you've got all these, the, the Corinthian church is just riddled with problems, right? I mean, it's just full of conflict and disorganization and it's terrible. The Galatian church, it says in Galatians 5.15, they're biting and devouring each other. You got any babies that bite? But yeah, it's, they're biting and devouring each other. This is this is this is the early church. Uh, then you've got the Ephesians, where Paul calls for spiritual unity. Philippi, we've walked through that book. You got two women in Philippi who are who are at each other's throat, and this is the early church. And then you got James. Obviously, there's conflict, and he has to address it. Uh, and maybe you're thinking, well, as they worked out all the wrinkles, it got better, and over time, the church was organized. 7th century Jewish philosopher, I can't pronounce his name, I think it's Spinoza, he wrote this, I have wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display that, that is displayed daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the criteria of their faith. I'm going to read that again because it's weird language, but I, I want you to get it. He goes, I've often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, these are Christians, they profess love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity. But they quarrel with each other with such rancorous animosity and display such bitter hatred towards each other that it is the hatred and their fights that is the criteria for their faith. That's the 7th century. And we live in today's world, and you saw six or seven of things that churches have fought over. Here's my point. This series says how faith can impact the world. How can we impact the world if people view us as always fighting with each other? How can we impact the world if we're seen to be the opposite of what we profess? Now, I'm not saying the church that this Jewish philosopher didn't show love and joy and peace. They probably did. 
but it was their fights that drew the attention of the outside world. That's something to think about. Now, I will say this just up front. There are things worth fighting for. We need to fight for doctrine and truth. We fight for the Bible, okay? But the way we fight helps distinguish us too. We don't do it with slander and envy and hate. We do it with love and gentleness and in compassion, okay? And so there are things that we have to fight about. There are disagreements that we're going to have, and not all disagreements are bad. The ones I read are pretty silly and should have never came up. And all churches have those things. But there are things that we have to discuss and have to talk about. But James gives us kind of a clear picture on a better way to do it. And he gives us the reason and the remedy. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see the reason for conflict and the remedy for conflict. But my goal is that by, by the time we're done is that we'll see that it's submission to God. It is submission to God that is the remedy to our conflict. Church conflict, family conflict, work conflict. It's the remedy for our conflict with God himself. So here's what, again, James chapter 4, 12 verses this morning, verses 1 through 4. Here's what the word of the Lord says. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covenant and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be friends of the world becomes enemies of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? But he, verse 6 is transition, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded and miserable, uh, you double-minded person. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray together. Father, as we examine your word this morning... May it reveal to us our sin, and may it reveal to us our Savior. Father, help us to be convicted where we have failed and embrace the saving power of our Lord Jesus, submitting to him each and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when we think about the last few weeks of James, he's been pretty harsh, hasn't he? 
He talked about being doers of the word and receiving the word. And then he went into taming the tongue and not showing favoritism and producing fruit. Last week, he compared earthly wisdom to godly wisdom. So he's been addressing some very hard topics. And what it really boils down to is their heart topics. He's basically been saying that I've got to, God has to cleanse your heart uh, before we can have an impact on the world. Listen, before we have any kind of impact on the world, Jesus has to have an impact on our heart, right? Before we can have an impact on spreading the gospel and ministering to our community, Jesus has to first rip out all of that uncleanliness that we find in our own life and in our own heart. And now it is conflict. And he says the first thing is that the reason we have conflict is because of personal passion or personal preference is another way to put it. Personal passion or personal preference. He asked two questions, and I love the way he does it. Um, he said the first one's you know, just kind of an inter- introductory question. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Then he answers it with a question. You ever done that? Have you ever, have you ever asked a question and somebody answered it with a question? Yeah, we've all done that. So he, and James takes it upon himself to answer the question with a question. Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Now, it's rhetorical because he knows the answer. It's kind of like, uh, honey, did you do the dishes? And it's rhetorical because the dishes are piled up in the sink. She knows the answer. Or, uh, that's right. I'm trying, well, I, I thought of another one when I was a student, but it would be a bad example for the students in the room. So I don't think I'm going to say it. Yeah, I'm going to say it. No, I'm not going to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was in college, actually. So it was a computer class in college. Uh, I was behind. The girl sitting next to me was uh, ahead. Uh, and this was this was 20-some years ago. So the way the networks was set up is we could click on a folder with the other person's name on it and see their files. So I just copied and pasted her work into mine. Now, I told her I was going to do it, and she was okay with it. Here's the problem. And students, listen to me. Don't cheat because you'll get caught. I, I didn't think. I just copied and pasted. Next day, the professor, luckily the professor was also another student in one of my other classes, so he was a friend of mine, so we didn't get turned in, which was good. But if it had been a real professor, we'd have been in trouble. He, came, he asked me, he says, did you copy and paste her work? I said, no. He looked at me again. He goes, rethink it because I already know the answer. <laughs> you know how he knew? When I copied and pasted, I didn't change the name on the assignment. Her name was on my, you know, so, you know, but we, so don't do that. But he asked the question already knowing the answer. That's what James has done. He's asking the question, uh, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? And the answer is yes. That's exactly where they come from. Your personal preference, your passions. Now, the key word is passion. You might want to highlight it, circle it. That's, that's kind of the key word. It's where we get the word hedonism from. Hedonism is defined as a belief that pleasure is the chief end of a good life, okay? So basically, that word means that everything about your life, the primary goal is to have pleasure for yourself. Now, James has been on this thread of self and selfish ambition and envy and jealousy and really promoting yourself. And now he's adding a layer to it that, you know, the unchristian heart has these desires that lead us to advance us over anybody else because we want pleasure for us. This is an indulgent pleasure, by the way. Not, not all pleasure. You know, I have a desire and a pleasure to see the Panthers win a football game before I 
pass, okay? That's not a bad pleasure, but the indulgent pleasure would be if I did something to harm somebody because they were losing, okay? So not all pleasure is bad, and this is very specifically an indulgent pleasure that is going to indulge our life in a, uh, in a self-indulgent behavior that is contrary to God's word. And what happens is, and you see this with babies, right? They have a toy, one toy. It's their toy. That toy brings them pleasure. If they're screaming, they're, maybe it's a binky or, or, or whatever. There's just one toy. If they're screaming, they're crying, you can give them the toy, they're happy. So what happens when you discipline the baby by taking the toy away? They take the temper tantrum to an unacceptable level, don't they? Adults do the same thing. It just looks different. Well, some of us cry. Uh, some, some of us may, may stomp our feet. Remember the Andy Griffith episode? Where Opie's learning and he holds his breath and, and, and Andy just kind of looks at him like he's crazy. You know, we do that because we want something so badly and we don't get it. So then we get frustrated and we get, uh, and when frustration leads to backbiting and talking bad about people. And next thing you know, you're like those deacons out in the parking lot slugging it out, right? Uh, you know where I see this most often? Youth sporting events. Anybody? Youth, maybe not so much now. I mean, I, I maybe so. I haven't been to a youth sporting. I go to the Y. Those are good Christian people at the Y. But the, uh, <laughs> I've also discovered soccer parents aren't quite as intense as baseball and football, at least where I've been. So that's good. But I see this, you know, you see these videos every now and then of parents fighting with coaches and my kid didn't get to play and that's what I really, really, really wanted because my kid's the next Babe Ruth. No, they're not. But you know, that's, they're going to blows and I've told you the story about me yelling at referees and it's because we didn't get what we wanted. There was a story about a church out of Texas. Uh, there was such a great conflict that the church split. But the split was so dirty, so nasty that both sides wanted the building. Okay, they both were fighting. It goes to court. I mean, they, I mean, not not church court. I mean, it goes to real United States court. They sue each other over the building and the property. The judge traces the conflict back to a church meal. They serve deviled eggs. Okay, I think the old man. There was an old man, an older man who got infuriated. This is a true story, by the way. Uh, it, was, it was one of the papers down there. An older man got infuriated because the piece of ham that he was given was smaller than what the little child was given beside him. Let I me mean, think about that for a second. He had the, such desire, such personal preference to have a bigger piece of ham than a little kid. They could just, you know, if you're in the cafeteria of a school, you just ask to trade, right? I'll give you a small piece of ham and a cookie for that big piece of ham. I mean, that's how, that would have been a simple way to solve the issue. So that's what we get to. And so here's what I just want to share, share with you. The war in our, and he goes on to say that this is a war within us. Christians, we have a war within us. It's in our heart. Because we still have an old nature. We still have a nature that says, I want what I want, the way I want it, when I want it. Can I tell you a secret? That doesn't go away when you decide to follow Jesus. It wars within you. As you grow in your faith, you begin to allow the Spirit of God to help you overcome those desires. 
But James says it just, it's this war within your heart. And, and this war in your heart is causing wars in our churches. This war in our heart is causing wars in our families, in our businesses, our schools. My goodness, in our government, in our nation. This war in our heart is causing wars in our life. And it leads to, you know, this personal passion leads to problematic actions. Leads to problematic actions. Look at verse 2. It says, you murder and you covet. You fight, you wage war. Like that little child, you take these uh, unmet desires and these displeasures and you raise them to an unacceptable level. Now, a lot of people that I read this week really think that James is talking about verbal back and forth. You know, he's not... This is very literal, strong, warlike language that we're going to kill people, we're going to murder, we don't have, so we're going to go take. Most commentators think he's being very uh, metaphorical in that he's really just talking about verbally assassinating somebody. You know, Jesus talks about this some in the Sermon on the Mount where he takes murder to a whole nother, nother level. It's not just killing somebody physically, it's assassinating their character is the way I like to see it. And, and that's probably what James has in mind, but... The more you study and the more you read, you understand that there are members of this early church who were religious zealots. They were zealots and they were Jewish zealots. And you know, the zealots were very confrontational. They were very, if I don't get my way, I'm going to kill you. And so knowing that there are members in the church who are, who are struggling with becoming more and more like Jesus, it is conceivable to think that, yeah, there's members killing each other. And, and I mean, the language is so literal that he's really addressing harsh physical confrontations between the members. And so this, this passion is leading to problematic actions. And, you know, but for us today, I hope that we have, I don't think there's any zealots in the room, maybe. But today it really is verbal assassination. It starts with the words that we use. It's why James focuses so much on taming the tongue. And then you look down at verse 11 and 12, and James uh, says, don't criticize one another. He, I love, he uses this phrase, brothers and sisters, which I'll point out, he uses something different in a minute. He says, anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. Here's what he says in verses 11 and 12. When you slander somebody's character, when you lie about somebody, when you spread rumors, when you criticize harshly, you are putting yourself above God. You're putting yourself above God. You're putting yourself above God's law. Namely, love your neighbor. That's what happens when we have conflict, is we are basically elevating my desires, my wants, my needs, above what God wants and what God knows that we needs problematic actions we also see james points out it's, it leads to problematic praying personal passion leads to problematic praying At, you ask and do not receive because we ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures before that he says you don't receive because you don't ask there's a lot of reasons we don't pray there's a lot of reasons we don't ask some of it we don't ask because we just don't trust god right we don't ask because we don't think God will answer that prayer. So we just don't ask. Some of us don't ask because we think we can do it on our own. We think that we have the ability to fix this or meet our needs. 
But then when we ask, we don't receive because we ask with the wrong motives. You know, if I prayed for a Mercedes Benz over and over and over and over, and God didn't give me your Mercedes, does that mean God wasn't faithful? No, it just means it was, I didn't want to use it for anything, I just wanted a Mercedes. And if you have a Mercedes, I'm not talking bad about the car, I love the car. Or if I, you know, I pray to have a million dollars put in my bank account tomorrow. What's my motives for that? What's my motives? When we pray, we have to pray. I, I heard it said this week that, uh, and I think I've said it before in, in one way or another, uh, prayer is not getting heaven, is not getting our, our wants and needs met by heaven. It is when we pray, we're trying to bring heaven to us, to heaven to earth. When we pray, we are showing a dependence upon God. And, and as you develop a prayer life and as you grow and pray and pray and more and learn how to pray, you'll be amazed at how your prayer life will align with God's will for your life. And all of a sudden, you'll see answered prayer after answer. You, you're not, you might not get the Mercedes, but you'll begin receiving blessings from God that you can in turn use to bring glory to God and impact others with the gospel. And then he comes to verse 4. Now, throughout this book, he's called them brothers and sisters, very gentle brothers and sisters. We saw it in verse 11 and 12. In verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. That's strong language. We all know what adultery is in, in the context of the world we live in. What does it mean here? He's basically saying, you adulterous people, you have these personal desires, you're fighting with each other, you're punching each other, you're killing each other, you're verbally assassinating other people. You adulterous people, you're cheating on me with the world. That's what he says. You are cheating on me with the world. And he says, you cannot be friends with the world and be friends with God. If you're friends with the world, you're God's enemies. If you would prefer to live in this world, to be accepted by this world, act just like this world, then you are at enemies and in conflict with God. That, that, that's the heart of what he's saying. You're cheating on God with the world. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't know if I'm that or not, I'll ask you this question. Do you feel more at home in the church or out in the world? Where are you more comfortable? Is this hour or two on Sunday mornings uncomfortable for you? Do you dread coming to church? Now, but I don't want to be harsh because I think everybody's gone through dry spells in our faith. We've all gone, myself included, we've all gone through these spells where we just didn't want to go to church. We just, we just didn't want to pray. We didn't want to read our Bibles. We've all gone through that and we've, we've all gone through experiences where we just feel more comfortable in the world. But that is a problem. And as we grow in our faith, we just continue to pursue it. And sometimes you just got to grind through that. You just got to keep trusting and keep praying and keep studying and keep going. But again, it boils down to your heart. Is your heart more in love with the world or is it in love with the church? I mean, the church is on a a collision course with the world. We have been blessed in the United States to freely worship for a long time. And I, you know, that could continue for a long time that we can gather on Sunday mornings free of persecution. But what will you do 
when it's no longer free to do it. And you say, that'll never happen here. Well, pretty much everywhere else in the world, they're not allowed to do it. They have to meet in homes. They have to meet in huts. They don't have buildings like this or places of worship like this. The rest of the world is much different than the American church. Would you still go to church if it was like that? If you had to sit on the dirt instead of in a padded pew? Where is your heart? Are you in love with the world and worldly things? Or are you in love with God? Because if you love the world, you're going to act like the world. And the world's in conflict. The world's in conflict. But there's good news. Because the remedy to all that conflict is submission to God. It starts with God's grace. I love that. I mean, God created us. He created you. He knows the the hairs on your head. He knows your name. He knows everything about you. He knows how sinful you are. He knows how sinful your heart is. And he still sent his son to die for you. That's grace. That's getting something we haven't earned or we don't deserve. I'll say it all the time. I'm not giving my only son up for you guys. Y'all are And from my human perspective, you're not worth it. I love you. But God says, I love you and you are worth it. Because I'm going to send my one and only son to hang on a cross to end the conflict. First and foremost, between God and humanity. So James says, submit to God and draw near to God. I mean, that's it. If you want to fix the conflict in church, stop submitting to your own personal preferences and desires. Submit to God's will. If you want to end the conflict in your families, submit to God's will for the family. That's not going to all go away. I mean, teenagers are going to be teenagers and parents are going to be parents. But it will go a whole lot smoother when everybody is submitting to God's will. If you want to end the conflict in your heart, submit to God's will. So this is just a question. Have you submitted your life to God? Have you given your life to the Lord Jesus? As you study James and as you study the Gospels, you really do see some differences than what we think. We don't see disciples praying the sinner's prayer. That's a good prayer. We, 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 don't see, um, we, don't, we don't see these other than a few, you know, one or two places. We don't see massive altar call. I mean, we see it in, in Acts and a few places. But most of the time we see individuals simply submitting their life to God. We see individuals simply saying, today I'm going to follow Jesus. Today I'm going to stop following the world I'm going to stop following my passions and my preferences. And I'm just going to follow God. I'm going to follow Jesus. That is the first step in salvation. Do you believe and will you follow? And if you've never decided to follow Jesus, then today is the day for you to commit your life to him. To submit and to surrender. To say, I'm going to end this conflict. It's going to be done. 
And I'm going to let God transform my heart. I'm going to let God transform my life. And so all these other conflicts that I experience, I'm just going to give it to God and let God fix it. It'll be hard. It'll be messy. But I'm going to put my faith and trust in him. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that if there's anyone here who's never made the decision to follow you, that they would step forward, that they would accept you as their Lord and Savior, that they would surrender their life and submit their life to you. And Father, for Christians who are here, who are involved in in the conflicts of life, help us to submit to your will. Help us to seek your ways and your guidance. And and we know that you can help overcome the conflicts in our families and our businesses, that you can help overcome the conflicts in churches just by saying, God, your will be done, not mine. Father, we just pray that you would continue to work in this world. Help this church and the other churches in this community, state, nation, around the world. Help us to impact the world with our faith. Because there's still a lot of people who need to hear about you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that the Lord has spoke to your heart and has blessed you through this message. If you would like more information about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, please reach out to us at one of the following locations. You can visit us online at chinagrovefbc.com slash salvation or check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash chinagrovefbc. Thank you and have a blessed rest of the day.